Welcome, everybody, to the Illusion of Consensus podcast. I'm Professor Jay Bhattacharya, and today I'm absolutely delighted to have my friend Matthew Crawford uh, with us for a discussion about the corruption of science and what to do about it. Matthew is a senior fellow at the University of Virginia's Institute for Advanced Studies uh, on, in Culture, uh, but he lives in the Bay Area. Uh, he's, you know, Ma Matthew's probably best known for a book uh, with the title Shop, Cla Shop Class as Soulcraft, an Inquiry into the Value of Work in 2009, which was a New York Times bestseller. Uh, and Matthew, I, I, I think the first time I saw you was on a video with Freddie Sayers in, in, in your garage where you were working on a car, apparently for years. Uh, so yeah. You, uh, and and then I read this article this that you wrote in Unheard about about the uh, about the corruption of science, and so I, I immediately realized what you were, which is a a punk philosopher of science, and and it was like a delight to have you to get get to talk with you uh, here on about about science and what to do about the problems in it. Okay, well, thanks a lot for having me, Jay. I've, I've followed your stuff from afar, and um, I'm looking forward to talking with you. Okay, so I, I wanted to give the audience a little bit of about uh, about your background, and actually, it goes back to when you were little. Uh, your dad was a physicist, a professor of physics at Berkeley, work in working in the what, like the sixties, fifties, sixties, seventies, on pretty fundamental advance. That was a pretty exciting age for for physics, uh, huge advances in understanding of the, 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 the basic nature of, of, of particles, of masses, of, like electrons and of, of neutrons, of, of uh, protons, that, you know, the, the quarks, all that, all that comes up. Um, and your dad was like in the middle of this. And you were, you were a little kid in that, in that uh, hothouse environment. Yeah. So my dad uh, was a physics professor and um, you know research scientist at Lawrence Berkeley Lab. He was in um, Louis Alvarez's group. So Louis Alvarez won the Nobel Prize in 1968 for his use of the bubble chamber for detecting particle decays. So this was a device that would fit on a, a tabletop um, and you could probably build one yourself. <clears throat> Um, and so this was a time when science had a certain scale to it. Uh, this is actually kind of early in the process by which science became big science that really kind of got kickstarted during World War II, uh, you know, Manhattan Project and things like that. But it was still a time when there was a kind of intimate human scale to, to doing even particle physics. Whereas now, you know, you've got CERN, you have Slack at Stanford, these enormous inst installations that take up, you know, an amount of real estate that only huge consortiums of institutions can secure and uh, government. So, so I guess the point here is that science sort of got transformed into something that's inherently corporate in the sense of collective and uh, consumes enormous resources that aren't secured by science itself and have to, so science has to kind of place itself in alignment with, um, with various entities that can kind of provide for it. I mean, I remember when I was little, I, I had, um, what was it? We, we had this like science fair thing we had to do. And I, uh, my dad was electrical engineer. And so he told me about, uh, like connecting stuff to batteries to make, you know, lights, shine up so i made this little quiz game using a shoebox 
and in the back of it there were like the wires would be you know you know the, the, the question and the right answer would be connected and if you put the right the, the, the uh, on the front you'd see you put the right uh, 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 sort of clip on one on the question and the right clip on the answer there'd be a light bulb that would light up if it was on the wrong one the light bulb wouldn't write and I, I thought that was just the most amazing thing um and so it's like, like a little logic circuit basically yeah it was a tiny little logic circuit mm-hmm. um and it was you know it was just at, at, and you know, i think it was like eight or nine years old it was just i mean I, and to me it was just the most incredible thing it's like and, and you it's the kind of thing where yeah, you look back on it; it's just it's not that big a deal. But on the other hand, it 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 kind of is. Like the idea that one person can explore the universe in this mm-hmm. way and learn something about it. Yeah. So my dad used to do what he called kitchen physics, where he'd uh, investigate things around the house. So one question, for example, is if you want to empty a jug of water the fastest. Should you just turn it upside down and let the water come out in that sort of glug, glug, glug way? Um, or should you put, you know, pour it at a gentler angle uh, and get a sort of an unbroken stream? And the, the answer that he discovered is that if you, if you take the jug, turn it upside down and swirl it around really fast to set up a whirlpool effect, then you get a hollow space at the center of the flow where air can enter and it empties really fast. So things like that. I mean, so that, that's, uh, so that's like science at a small scale, but, but, but it's, uh, but on the other hand, it's like pretty fundamental science, right? So you have to have the air displace the water for the, the jug to empty. It seems like a simple thing, but it's really has profound implications. And in the era that preceded your dad's uh, uh, work in physics, You'd seen, I mean, like one person, someone like Albert Einstein, make tremendous advances with yeah. just ideas, like without a huge team of people. Um, and and it and all of the, I mean, I still remember reading about that that era of science, and it seemed such an amazing thing. Like the 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 the, the first half of the twentieth century, every single year, there's some huge advance like in 19 it's 19 it's only in the 1950s we learn about the structure of dna yeah yeah and you know the very image we have of what science is i think is tied to this picture of a, a sort of solitary individual you know poking around to see how things go like the remember galileo up in the leaning tower of pisa according to lore dropping things to see how fast they would go which is supposedly how he came up with, you know, the inverse square law of gravity, that things fall at the same rate, regardless of mass. Um, so, yeah. And, and in the night, it's the 1950s, you have, you know, Crick, Watson and Rosalind Franklin and uh, just a few, a few people figuring out the structure of DNA. And then fast forward 50 years, you basically take, vast chunks of the biomedical uh, research workforce to do the human genome projects. All these people focused in one direction or these, as you said, these large particle uh, colliders. What happens when you move from that small scale to that large scale? Like what happens to the politics of science? What, what has that changed the nature of science? Yeah, well, the fact that it is a collective enterprise now and that it requires a lot of money and resources means that it's um, it's inherently politicized. 
Um, I, I think that's not something to be scandalized about. It's just kind of an observation of, of the truth of it. But it does mean that science now has to serve some master other than simply truth. And of course, it, the activity of science is going to be sort of self-selecting for a certain human type, someone who will find, you know, that kind of becoming a bureaucratic master attractive. You have to take a certain amount of political talent and a certain institutional savvy and, you know, fundraising and all that. So, you know, successful scientists are really scientist bureaucrats. Um, so we're introducing considerations now that are orthogonal, let's say, to uh, the basic truth motive, um, which which is certain to, to comp you know, sort of uh, compromise things a bit. I mean, so you're attracting a different set of people to science, people who uh, are attracted to organizing large projects. I mean, they may still be interested in, in truth, of course, but they're not you can't just tinker around uh if you just if the if tony fauci or francis collins decide something vast numbers of, of scientists and minds will move in that direction with them yeah right i was fascinated to see uh, i'm gonna get it wrong but you can correct me um research into the efficacy of various um drugs for treating covid i don't know ivermectin or something like that that in other countries, there was um, all kinds of research happening about this. And in the U.S., um, no one was finding any such efficacy. And the, the suggestion was that it was tied to the fact that, you know, everybody's getting their money from NIH or whatever. I mean, it's, it's absolutely true. In 2020, the NIAID put almost zero dollars into testing, rigorously testing with randomized trials, uh, cheap drugs. Mm -hmm. they, they eventually did organize large trials, but it took them three years to finish them. Whereas, you know, you have small countries everywhere, small research teams everywhere, all organizing small, uh, small, smaller scale studies to try to test them. Um, and then they're all, all that science is just dismissed because, go oh, no, we have to wait until the big guys uh, weigh yeah. in. So, yeah, I mean, you have this situation where bec because we live in a, a technocratic society, um, you know, science is pressed into duty as authority. And if you think of that other episode from Galileo's life where he's brought before the Inquisition and, you know, he because he, he had demonstrated that the earth revolves around the sun, the church didn't like this. So, you know, he recanted to save his skin. But in, in the lore of that, he sort of mutters under his breath, uh, you know, but yeah, it does yeah. move. So here's an episode, you know, where you have science with its devotion to truth and then authority, you know, it's, it's like the opposite of science. But when you press science into duty as authority, you're really kind of creating this massive tension because the whole pride of science as a mode of inquiry is that it's supposed to be falsifiable. But what sort of authority would insist that it's grasp of reality is merely provisional you know it's just it's a contradiction you have like full disclosure matt because you and i visited uh galileo's home uh like where he was um his i guess a villa is what you call it uh where he was confined for the last decade of his life uh together uh and we got to see 
the you know sort of the tiny room where he where he slept and the and the where in and the place where he wrote under the the nose of the of the Catholic Church the the um his his last book like sort of revolutionary book um yeah. I mean I, I do think that that idea of authority giving power science science as an authority giving power I mean essentially what it is is the power to distinguish between what's true and not true at a social level. If science, so you know, follow the science means you accept the theoret the 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 uh, the, the the kinds of um, uh, like substantive de de declarations that science says about you know A, B, or C, right? That is that's a huge power. Uh, it's the kind of power that maybe the church might once have had to distinguish between true and false, good and good and bad. Yeah, I think. Um... You know, it's uh, the apolitical image of science as a disinterested arbiter of reality that makes it such a powerful instrument of politics, right? Because you're, you're, when you're pointing and you're saying science says, you're saying, you know, you're, you're, you're claiming a kind of disinterestedness there. Um, so again, when you press science into duty to to be authoritative and to get people to do what you want them to do, um, you're really you're, that's where the, I think the corruption begins. And this is fundamental, right, to a, a technocratic society, which is what we are. Where we have sort of it's an unstable kind of mixed hybrid regime of um, democracy and technocracy. So opinions or popular opinion and scientific expertise as these rival uh, sources of political legitimacy. And, um, and during the pandemic, you know, we saw this extraordinary transfer of um, sovereignty from sort of uh, representative bodies to expert bodies and a um, sort of acquiescence to this on the part of the public that was made to, to be really afraid. And that's, there's a lot of utility in making people afraid, right? Because it kind of opens the way to suspending the normal um, sort of constitutional arrangement and in investing authority in, um, in expert bodies. Like once you granted a power or an authority, the power over life and death, right? So either you believe the science and you live, or you don't believe the science and you die. It's uh, yeah. <laughs> a tremendous power, I think. Yeah, especially if you can convince people that science is speaking with this, with this univocal, you know, voice on some some inherently messy empirical picture. Uh, that's going to be greatly simplified and usually interpreted in a maximally alarming way so as to sort of break down people's, um, you know, inclination to uh, to question it. Yeah. I mean, I think I, I keep bringing this religious analogy in because it, it, it seems like it's like I, I still remember seeing the votive candles devoted to Fauci. And in this in this home, we 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 follow we follow Fauci. I mean, the the it 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 had this like um, faith like feeling. It wasn't I mean, simply science. Yeah, it's no. kind of medieval, right? And and if yeah. you're a real apostate, you're accused of not not believing the science. Um, 
or yeah, or it's it's all very kind of uh, yeah, medieval sounding, I guess. I mean, the funny thing is, like, I I I am I'm a I believe I'm a, I'm a Christian, and I believe so. I and and for me, that that act has been much more allowed me to be more questioning of those kinds of ideas. It's freed me to be questioning those ideas. It wasn't it wasn't simply you must believe this or else. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it it was an, an invitation to a discussion, um, a, a a relationship, an idea of, a, with with, a, uh, with God. I mean, so it wasn't it wasn't simply just a power move. Whereas the the pandemic, science felt like a power move enacted on the population at large. Yeah, yeah. It's interesting you bring up um, you know the the comparison with actual like religious faith. There's a uh, there's an historian named Christopher Lash who um, has this line. He wasn't himself a believer, as far as I can tell, but just as an historical observation, he said, "Submission to God makes people less submissive in everyday life," um, which I thought was an interesting observation. I mean, if if I'm if I'm subservient to him, then uh, why why should I serve Fauci? Like, I guess would be the uh, would be the idea. Um, and and uh, you actually one other thing you brought up in your I thought was fascinating in your in that in, in the article uh, corruption of science that you published on heard was about um, the BLM riots and public health in this context, where a thousand uh, a thousand public health scientists in I think it was like May. 2020 or June 2020, shortly after condemning people who were protesting lockdowns, decided that uh, that protesting racism was good for public health. Now, my my position was both protests were fine. Like it's not the role of public health to tell people what they should should or should not get exercised about, and that it sh- it should not be restricting basic civil liberties like the right to protest. Shouldn't be conferring uh, scientific uh, the patent of scientific like uh, authority on one and not the other. Should be neutral about those kinds of things. Yeah. Now there was a really interesting episode. I mean, that summer of 2020 was just it was an extraordinary time when the health emergency of COVID and the moral emergency of you know white supremacism seemed to merge into this single thing. And yeah, you had the spectacle of, I think it was 1,200 public health um, people signing this letter, endorsing, you know, the BLM protests and suspending, you know, distancing mandates. Um, But I think that it gets to this broader problem, which is that, you know, in the Internet era, um, the authority of technocratic bodies has come under a lot of pressure because it's harder to sustain the kind of knowledge monopoly that's required um, to have a kind of epistemic, you know, um, authority to, to tell people, you know, what's what. And so with populism, you've seen this kind of crisis of authority across all these different dimensions of, you know, journalism, science, uh, you name it. And it seems like one strategy to try to shore up the, um, you know, legitimacy of, of, of expert bodies has been to turn to a moralistic kind of um, intimidation factor. 
So one one area where you see this, I don't know if you remember, this would have been, I think, 2009, the Climate Gate scandal. Um, so for your listeners who may not remember, this was the, there was this university, East Anglia, where a lot of the top climate researchers um, were based, and they had their emails hacked by some mischief maker and published. And what the emails revealed was a really concerted effort to keep uh, sort of dissident voices out of the peer reviewed journals and uh, sort of stonewalling against, sort of coordinated stonewalling against requests for data from um, researchers who weren't part of the guild. And it so this did enormous damage to uh, sort of the, the climate establishment. And it was right, you know, not too soon after that, that you had the rise of a Greta Thunberg character and more broadly, this kind of hysterical climate moralism. So you have to wonder if there was a heightened receptivity in sort of in the climate establishment for the arrival of a figure like that. Um, who kind of escalates the the moral urgency of the cause. Um, and so there's a pattern that you see both in climate science and in, in things like, like COVID, where you have a kind of mass energy that's galvanized by celebrities who always, of course, speak with certainty about whatever it is they're pronouncing on. Well, I mean, and, the, the striking thing about that is that you've now moved from scientific discussion, which involves nuance, involves testing of ideas, humility, because you're often wrong, uh, data, disciplining what you say or don't don't say, to a, a realm of heroes and villains. Yeah. You know, essentially, you know, Greta Thunberg is, is a climate saint. Uh, yeah. Uh, Tony Fauci is a is a COVID pope, right? You have you have a almost quasi religious kind of uh, valence to these figures that has nothing to do with really about what science, what I thought science is about. It actually has to do with uh, a, a call, a moral call to action. If you want to be good, you have to act and be in this way. You have to believe these things. Yeah. And so there's, um, right, and in the name of this crusade, you have to declare um, not just a monopoly of knowledge, but really a moratorium on the asking of questions that might be awkward questions to ask. And sometimes these research cartels that are at the center of the consensus, whether it's climate or COVID, will you know mobilize these sort of energies of denunciation uh, among activists to run interference, essentially. Um, I mean, you, you saw in the case of the lab leak hypothesis, the way the sort of virology cartel set up this um, moratorium on even talking about it, the lab leak, because it was a you know, racist conspiracy theory or something. And um, it wasn't until, you know, way, way later that, you know, New York Times and such places were dragged, kicking and screaming into a, an acknowledgement of what was always a pretty plausible hypothesis. I mean, you don't have to tell me about uh, about being a heretic, Matt. I mean, it's as you know. Uh, I mean, I, I felt the, the the full weight of that. Um, and the, you you and the, and you keep bringing up this term, research cartels. I think it's a really productive way to think about how 
modern corporate big science actually works as opposed yeah. to some hypothetical. A relatively small number of mines controls a vast chunk of the resources and power. And they use that to organize the mines and, and uh, of, of countless other scientists below them who depend on them for not just for money, but for social stature within the world of science itself, awards, whatnot. Yeah. Um, and that, that kind of, of power makes it very difficult for someone who doesn't agree with the people at the very, very top. Right. You, you, you bring up that, that climate gate. I'll just tell you from my personal experience with, with fringe epidemiology, uh, it's, it is, it is, it's one of those things where like the, the field that I thought I was in, which is this field of, 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 uh, you know, uh, learning how diseases spread, trying to understand trade-offs in, in disease mitigation strategies, uh, you know, health policy, the connection with social sciences to understand, uh, how some of the policies might impact other other realms of life. I mean, th that's the field I thought I was in. But it turns out that that's not the field I was in. The field I was in was, you must agree that lockdowns are the only way, because Tony Fauci said so. You must agree that there was no lab leak, because Tony Fauci and Francis Collins said so. Yeah. So, right, you naively went about uh, doing your santa clara county zero prevalence study which is almost like uh, kitchen physics right it was a pretty simple thing to investigate uh pretty fundamental thing you, you would probably want to know and, and what was the result jay i mean it, it, it was i was a heretic both my own university and the the world of science decided to excommunicate me effectively then yeah. and then after that for the great parenting declaration um, I, and I think, um, it's really the, these, the episodes that you're talking about means that this was not just, I mean, I, I would have thought of it as just a new thing. I had never really encountered anything like it until 2020, but what you're saying, Matt, is that, that this has been a, this, this has been a reality, at least for a while, at least in some areas of science. Yeah. There was, so there was a guy named Henry Bauer, who was a chemistry professor and I think Dean of, of arts and sciences at Virginia Tech. And I think it was about 2004, he published an article in which he tried to explain how science actually works uh, in our time, as opposed to the, the image of, you know, modern science that we were talking about um, with like Galileo and such. And he really emphasized the corporate or collective nature of it. And he's the one I believe who coined this term research cartel and he sort of um, laid out the various mechanisms by which consensus gets enforced and, you know, a real price paid for any kind of dissent within it. Really it's a kind of an update of um, a thesis that, you know, you, you may have encountered at some point in college of Thomas Kuhn, the structure of scientific revolutions. I think this would be a great time for everyone to go back and and reread that book and more broadly to sort of sociology of science. Um, you know, I'm old enough. You might be also to remember that back in the 80s and 90s, there were sort of science wars where the the political left loved Kuhn because he seemed to be saying that you know, science is not just this purely 
truth-seeking activity, that, it, that there's a whole, you know, these are human beings. And the political right would get upset about this and say, oh, that's relativism. Don't you see there's really such a thing as truth? That has completely flipped now, where the sort of establishmentarian left insists on the sort of sacred inviolability of science and its integrity. And people on the populist right just pointing out the obvious fact that these are human beings who do science. Yeah, I mean, I, I remember reading Kuhn actually, uh, I think it was like college. Uh, and uh, my reaction actually was really quite negative back then because um, I had had this idea of science as this pure thing. Yeah. But uh, and, and so for me, it was just a, 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 a challenge to that saying, well, no, no, it's not pure. In fact, um, there's a center. The center holds a certain set of ideas and their ideas on the fringe, if you will. Uh, data points that don't fit with the ideas of the center. Yeah. And the the goal, the one of the major purposes of modern scientific structures is to keep the fringe away from the center. So yeah. that we can't challenge it. Right. So there's some lacuna in the prevailing theory's ability to account for all the data. There's some things that just don't fit. And to 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 really emphasize the lacuna is to is to be on the periphery. And, you know, the whoever sits astride the institutional kind of scientific establishment, usually the paradigm, the prevailing paradigm doesn't change until they literally die uh, or retire. And then, you know, researchers who are more interested in the things that are not explained by the current theory, they can come into their own. Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, what is it, uh, Max Planck uh, said, science advances one obituary at a time exactly mm. for that reason uh, i i think i think um i mean Kuhn, I, looking back i i it, it's incredible how naive i really i, I really was i because i had in the back of my head this romantic vision of science of a single uh you know individual an einstein if you will or someone who overturns uh a, a you know revolutionizes the way we think about an entire field but that revolution then puts a lot of scientists who were at the top, at the center, seen socially as like the geniuses away from the center. Yeah. It, it, and, and now in the modern day, it also means a whole bunch of money and power goes away from the, 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 yeah. the, the, the people that control, control it. I want to give you some, some like um, just my, my experience with peer review or with, with, uh, with grant funding in the, in the before times before, before COVID. Cause I was actually fairly successful um, for a health economist, health policy, health, uh, you know, epidemiology type, in my NIH funding, I gotten, uh, I've been, I've been, I don't mean this to brag, it's just, a, it's just a fact. I mean, I would, I was sitting on NIH review panels all the time, um, and I, you know, would, 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 would get, uh, you know, NIH grants regularly funded. Um, the way that worked was really interesting. Uh, let me just focus on my experience as a peer reviewer on these NIH review panels. Right. So if uh, the way it works is, uh, you know, you, Matt, you can just decide you want to write a grant application as long as it fits the, the page limit and so on. You send to the NIH. Um, half of those applications, uh, th those applications all get sent to this big panel of reviewers. Three people will get it, like the grant that you wrote. Um, and uh, I can kill it right then and there as a reviewer. Mm -hmm. I can just say, I don't think this, this idea will work. And it won't get scored at all. Now, suppose the other two reviewers disagree with me, say, well, look, this is interesting. 
it'll come to a big review panel meeting. And my, my, the, my observation about those review panel meetings, first, only the three people that were assigned it have read the, that read the grant. And there's a little debate that happens between those three people. Usually there's one reviewer who likes it and two that don't for, for, mar, for grant, grants that are on the margin. And it is incredibly easy to kill a grant in that setting. All you have to do is say, well, this, is, this, this idea just if there's, has no chance of working. Now, in principle, the NIH is supposed to reward innovation. It's supposed to reward ideas that are risky. But in practice, it puts in place people who evaluate grants that have a vested interest in making sure that their, their paradigm doesn't get overturned. Yeah. Because then they'll have trouble getting grants. In fact, the grant reviewer panels for a long time required that you had a large NIH grant to sit on the panel in the first place. <laughs> Yeah. I mean, it's a similar issue as you have in peer review in journals, namely that the pool of suitable reviewers, there's going to be people in your field, um, which means that they're either going to be, they're likely to either be collaborators or competitors. Um, so, yeah, it's, it's an inherently, um, right, there's interests in play. And peer review just takes place behind closed doors, right? You're not going to get to see generally who the editor sends the, yeah. the paper to. And if your editor, if the editor, for whatever reason, is threatened by the ideas in your paper, it's very easy to send it to a reviewer that you know is. They don't have to be like skeptical of you generally. They just be specific. Like there's a whole group of scientists who just who's just their their first inclination to everything they read is that it's wrong. So you just send it to one of them. Yeah, I wonder if these um, sort of social dynamics that we're talking about in science could, like how much of the replication crisis to sweep field after field after field can be traced to these kinds of considerations? I mean, I think, uh, so the, the replication crisis is a really interesting thing, right? So think, let's think about what replication means in science. Re replication, we talk about peer-reviewed uh, journal publications as if it were a proxy for truth in science. But it's not actually a proxy for truth, right? Uh, a peer-reviewed publication in a journal just means that uh, I wrote a paper that I got three to four other people that are in the field to say uh, th that they would agree to let it be published in their journal. Yeah. That's it. That's all it means. Yeah. Now, they don't usually look at my data at all. I mean, I have raw data. I don't send them the raw data generally for peer review They're, they 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 essentially take as given as take it at my word that the things i've said i've done in the paper are the things i've actually done in the paper there's no oversight of that yeah. um they don't have any oversight of of where i got the data from except to, to again taking my word as given right there's a lot of trust involved in this but it's only a very small number of people that are overseeing it and they're people in my community right yeah. so if my community is hit by a scandal Although they may not be hit by that same scandal, they, 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 the, the field they're in may take a reputational hit relative to other fields in science. Yeah, and you know when you point out these things that are, I mean, they seem kind of obvious once they're stated. Um, you're often accused of being anti-science. Um, I, I mean, I've, I think I've gotten that just merely to commit the the heresy of a sociological sort of 
question asking about science can yeah. do that. It's funny because I've devoted my life to science and you're, you're a, I mean, I don't know if you like this label, but a punk, punk science philosopher. I mean, you must love science too, right? You have, you, you grew up in it to be accused of not loving science. In fact, it's because we love it that we're, that yeah. we're talking this way, right? Yeah. Um, I, go ahead. No, I was going to say, so, so, I mean, I think um, the, uh, the peer replication is, Mm. replication meaning that somebody else other than me or a whole bunch of other people other than me independently look at what i looked at and is able to say find the same thing that is how science gets done right that's how science confers on certain ideas the patent of truth um yeah and yet it's, it's not rewarded at all in fact it's punished if you spend your life doing replication in science mm-hmm you are uh first no one will know who you are yeah uh, unless you find unless you hit on a, some kind of scandal you find some 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 famous paper that doesn't replicate and you find out it's because of fraud in that case what happens is you're you are known for about 5 minutes and then forgotten yeah it's the per- it's the person who scandalized that, that that that's remembered and uh and so there's no reward really for replication even though it's the the critical truth finding kind of uh activity in science yeah and i mean in some fields there have been some creative efforts to um sort of reform from within i i think in psychology you know social psychology i think was maybe the first field to be completely decimated in a you know well publicized replication crisis and so they've done things like not just data sharing but um you know, the reporting of null findings, which is important, um, the pre-registration of hypotheses in these shared forums so that you're not sort of p-hacking your hypothesis into the findings, you know, after the fact, which, of course, destroys the whole logic of statistics. It has to be a, you know, a prediction, not a post hoc, you know, finding of a pattern somewhere in your data. Um, so you can imagine uh, reforms being taken up by different research bodies. I don't know how widespread that is. I, I, it's funny, psychology being one of the softer hard sciences may ironically be ahead in terms of, um, kind of this kind of epistemic reform that's probably necessary in the harder hard sciences as well. Like, uh, you know, yeah, virus stuff. I mean, a lot, a lot of this. I mean, part of it is that psychology, the the kinds of studies that weren't replicating are small scale studies, generally done by a small number of uh, researchers. Yeah, and it doesn't take a lot of resources to replicate uh, yeah. or not or fail to replicate that. Um, whereas, like you know, physics, h- how do you replicate something that CERN does? I mean, unless yeah. you happen to have a super collider in your backyard, um, th- it's yeah. gonna be tough. Yeah. Yeah. So I, I majored in physics as an undergrad um, at UC Santa Barbara. Um, you know, I was not aware of any of these sort of difficulties at the time. But I remember um, there was this one. Um, so I, I was taking an upper division sequence on electricity and magnetism. And there was a, a series of lectures over the course of about a week. The, the math was very hard. Uh, but at the end of it, sort of all of a sudden, unannounced, 
Maxwell's equations appeared on the board. They're very familiar. This is the fundamental description of how electricity and magnetism are essentially the same phenomena. And the professor hadn't announced ahead of time that this is what we were doing. That we, so we'd started off simply by talking about light and you know wave phenomena um, in this very general way. And that was that was one of the greatest moments of intellectual pleasure um, I've ever had in my life to, to see that come together on the blackboard, you know, on the final five minutes. <clears throat> I mean, it was, it was simply, um, exhilarating. It was that, like, that, a, is the, that is the joy of science, right? These unexpected connections, these discoveries. Um, and, but, and, but it has so little to do really with, I mean, I, I guess, I guess the defense, just a just a steel man, the defense uh, of the, the 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 sort of corporate corporate science. Um, there are questions that are not possible to be asked and answered by a sm small group of poorly funded scientists, right? You're not going to find the Higgs boson uh, by uh, but in your backyard with 15 bucks. That's not going to happen. Yeah. Uh, it's going to take a massive effort. Uh, you're not going to do the human genome project with you know, five, five, five people in a PCR machine, like it's going to take, it's going to take a concerted effort of countless bright people focused on that. You're not going to get a Manhattan project together in time um, during, in the middle of a war, unless you have this corporate science. So there are things that you cannot accomplish, but you're giving something up too, aren't you? You're giving, you're giving up uh, uh, the ability for scientists to ask such fundamental serendipitous discoveries that that can happen when a small group of people that aren't encumbered can ask questions and then other people in the scientific community uh in the in, it, it can look at those things and say okay yeah that works or no that doesn't work it can replicate or not replicate that you're giving you're giving that up when you've gone to the corporate science yeah you and i were talking offline about sort of alternatives to these structures like peer review and centralized funding that we currently have. And um, you, you want to, you want to lay that on us, the idea of sort of a review culture. Sure. Uh, so, so uh, I, I think, um, okay. So, so first I think the, the reform of this is a tremendously complicated thing, but I think that the, the way to do it, do this is to like analogize with other fields that are healthier. Um, and, uh, and now I don't know for certain this is that this other field that I'm about to bring up is healthier, but I, since I'm not in it, but uh, on the outside, it looks healthier. And that is movie making, right? So in the context of move in the, in, in the cost of making movies, um, I, I guess you do have to convince uh, of, of some large studio to give you money to make a movie, but you don't have to, you can just go out with a webcam and, and uh, make uh, the Blair Witch Project. I now dated myself the, for the listeners, but you can make a, you can make a movie for almost no money. And it potentially can make be a big hit. Uh, now, you, most of those that won't be a big hit, but some might be. And there's no board that says you can't publish this movie. Mm -hmm. You have a movie, you just put it on uh, YouTube. If you, and if YouTube doesn't won't let you put it on, then you can put it on Rumble, I guess nowadays. Um, there's no there's no a peer review at all for a movie, except for the fact, except maybe for bigger movies, you have to get more people to buy in, but that's that's just the nature of the thing. Um, and so there's no pre-released peer review that says, oh, you've made this movie, Jay, you're not allowed to release it. What there is in the movie making environment is a post-release 
very thick review infrastructure where people will make their careers being uh, being good reviewers and of all different kinds right so some will and and so the movies if they're if they're successful are the ones that draw the most reviews like if you have a actually a, like a terrible bad movie that draws a lot of reviews in some sense it's successful i still remember there was a movie called ishtar i don't know if you remember it was it was a major flop in uh, 1980 something uh, i'm dating myself but uh, the point is that the reviews made it memorable which otherwise would be an entirely forgettable movie terrible awful movie but no one but people remember it because of the reviews um the reviews then have the capacity to make or break the movies as a artistic project most most just get ignored uh most movies just get ignored a few garner a lot of attention and um the very best garner deep analyses about what this art means for for you know the hum for human existence or something right you 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 have uh so and and the and the movie reviewers themselves are are stars right yeah. everyone knows Roger Ebert even though he's been dead like you know 10 10 years or something um you 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 remember the people who review the movies because they themselves convey th their thought and, and actually their life into the movies that they that they review um science doesn't have that right in science what we have is we have anonymous reviewers that are basically receive no credit at all for doing a good job as a reviewer uh but there's no reason i think that science couldn't be more like the movie industry in that sense it would make life so much i mean the worst thing about being a, a practicing scientist is the fight over with peer reviewers to get your paper published it is horrible you've yeah. to they, you know i mean they say they they write something to do and you say okay i okay i'll, I'll they say they say do a b c and d and, all, and you think to yourself a b c and d are really stupid why would it's not going to help anything why would i do a b c or d um and so you say no i i, I mean it's, but if you say no then the, the editor is going to re reject the paper so you spend your life trying to satisfy people that you think are not going to make uh, to do things that you're not going to make your project any more replicable any more true mm -hmm. um why not just allow scientists just to do science and publish it this actually is not it's not that radical i mean uh for instance uh einstein was never peer-reviewed not i think one like maybe one peer one paper he had was 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 sent to a peer reviewer and he got very quite upset with the journal editor uh because you know how, how dare he send his paper to somebody without his permission um you don't need a, a peer review process to uh, have the scientific process work correctly. So you, the, the idea would be the scientists just publish their papers in, in open servers. If you're a good scientist, you'll also put all the data that you use to create the paper so that people can check them, all the programs you wrote, all the procedures, your photocopies, your lab notebook, or whatever it is. And then re let reviewers come and see and do what they will. Some reviewers will be good at like identifying new ideas, uh, promising ideas. Some will be good at connecting the, the papers that come out to existing literature that maybe they'll do meta-analyses. Others will be good at really technical, like fine-grained technical criticisms of the papers. Mm -hmm. And the reviewers themselves will become famous.
Yeah, I mean, I I like this idea. I, I guess there's one objection that you're you'd likely get, which is that um, you know you're parallel to a, a culture or industry like film um, would would draw the objection that well cultural products and the, their reception by some critical community tends to be highly mimetic. And so there's a kind of bandwagon effect. And if what we're trying to do is get at truth, then the kind of wisdom of crowds type idea might not be very reliable. But I think that's actually a, a kind of superficial objection because there are, um, you know, whether it's a community of taste, you know, sort of a connoisseurship kind of uh, class of cultivated judgment about film or, you know, books or whatever it may be, or or in science. Science, too, requires um, a kind of almost connoisseurship to appreciate what's, a, you know, an important and interesting class of problems to devote oneself to. I, mean, I guess the deep point I want to get at is that um, the reason that's a superficial objection is that science is inherently collective. Even before the rise of big science, there's a kind of apprenticeship that happens. There's a formation, you know, usually in the lab system where you inducted into a set of problems and a set of approaches to them. There's a philosopher of science named Michael Polanyi. He really emphasizes this, that to become competent as a scientist is... Um, to acquire skill. And he likens it very much to like a craft practice um, where you do, you serve an apprenticeship. And at first you have to simply take things on authority from your teachers. Um, and ev eventually you develop a kind of independence of judgment through this long process of initiation. Um, yeah. So I guess... It's never going to be that original image of science that we started with, of the solitary individual, was kind of never really accurate, right? It's always been social. But I, mean, I think that the, I mean you're absolutely right. Uh, both the, both the objection and the and the and the critique of the objection, I think, are both right. Uh, that si science is social. I I'm not if if I do science, if if Albert Einstein does science and no one reads him. Then he hasn't really had an hasn't really done science, mm -hmm. right? He has he's famous justifiably because his ideas convinced a very large number of people who could look and test them and see, replicate what he did that he was that he was right in many many ways and wrong in some other ways and they critique those parts. Sorry, who? Albert Einstein. Oh yeah, yeah, okay, yeah. I mean, uh, there's a there's a, uh, a friend of mine, Brian Keating, who's a, who's a cosmologist at the University of San Diego, and he has a great podcast on the errors of Albert Einstein. Where he, at first he praises him because obviously he's like a giant figure, but but the, you know he got some, like the cosmo cosmological constant. He got that didn't get that right. Um, so so there's the the point is that that his work is impactful in the context of a community, but it's a healthy community. A much healthier community. I don't know if it's healthy entirely. I mean, there was it was politicized and all that stuff. Um, you know, writing essentially in the in the shadow of Nazi Germany. But it was healthier than the community of scientists we have now. It was a community of people that were willing to let fundamental ideas be overturned 
on the back of of a of a of an idea that that was evidently correct, or a set of ideas that were evidently correct or useful or or, or true. Um, whereas the scientific community now generally is quite resistant to that kind of novelty. I mean, it's it's interesting because like you can point, you can you can you can say, okay, Jay, that's ridiculous. Uh, you, you get scientists scientific novelty all the time now. All these discoveries are happening. You know, CRISPR happens, or uh, the mRNA vaccine happens, or whatnot. All that stuff happens, um, um, but it's not. A, uh, but it's not like one of these things where you can you can say you. Can, but, but it's not like so cut and dry. The technological advances are on the backs of old ideas. Often, they the technological advances are based on on, adva on scientific advances that happened decades ago. And uh, when economists have looked at this, what they found is that the productivity of science per dollar invested in the scientific process is much less than it was now, what, what it once was. Uh, I did a, a, a analysis myself of, of the biomedical research uh, literature using a very simple idea. Like if you take all the words that were published in, uh, 2000, uh, in 1940 in the biomedical literature, and then you uh, look in 1941 and subtract off all the 1941, 40 words, you have all the new words that were introduced in 41. You can do the same thing in 42, 43, and so on, all the way up to 2023. Um, what you get then is a what looks very much like a history of biomedicine, if you, if you start with the corpus of all published biomedical papers. As, as the scientific literature ages, it introduces new terms, new, new co uh, combinations of terms that represent the new ideas that people are working with. And you go back and ask, okay, are, uh, how old are the ideas in each paper? It turns out that the NIH funds ideas that are roughly about eight years old nowadays. In the 80s, that was not true. It was, they were funding three-year-old ideas. Science has become more conservative over time in that sense. It's focused, it's the, the population of, who, of people who work in science has, has aged uh, such that, and so that it's difficult for young scientists to get, gain any traction. Physics is pretty bad in this way, but so is, but biomedicine especially. You won't get your first grant until your 40s, first large grant until your 40s. That wasn't true in the 80s. In the 80s, you could get your first grant in your mid-30s. Uh, one failure in the process of postdoc one, postdoc two, postdoc three, and you're going you're gonna to be out of science. And you're going to go into industry or something. Um, it's, it's a very punishing thing in that sense. And it's designed to keep the cartels together. Right, the, the 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 relatively small number of people who control the funding levers and the and the uh, you know award giving power uh, that they they get to decide who who is and who isn't who stays. It's much more stultifying than it was. Uh, the community is more stultifying than it was in in the Albert Einstein era. Yeah, and at the same time as you've had these developments within science, you've also had a move in our political culture toward a situation where anyone who wants to claim power does so in the name of science. So, um, you know, and there's, and there's usually some emergency that's, that's evoked um, that requires us to simply defer to that. Um, I mean, I think, I think, I think the key idea for reform for me is decentralization. Hmm. The movie thing is a good, it's, it's the thing I think I find attractive about it is the decentralization of the review process. Yeah. 
right? It no longer privileges a small number of people who can who can then pre-authorize you to, to ha have the science come out or not. Um, same thing should, I think should happen in grant funding. I think grant funding is too centralized now. One, I guess one difficulty you come up against is, um, in other words, why does it have to be so centralized? Well, one answer to that is simply that our attention is finite. So when you're a scientist, you need some kind of pre-selection process to be happening before you allocate your attention to something. And so that's what the establishment does, is it, it does a lot of selecting happening behind the scenes, whether it's in peer review or in the, the grant making process. Um, but to have it completely decentralized, you would face this really thorny epistemic problem of knowing what to attend to. Now, maybe the movie reviewer analogy helps here. Um, you know, people develop reputations as reviewers who are going to pick out the most important movies are going to pick out, um, you know, kind of do some of that pre-selecting for us. So it, it seems like a fruitful idea to pursue. I mean, I, I, that's what, that's what I think. Um, the, the movie, the, the, the there's absolutely a, an attention problem. I mean, you know, I, I, there's no, ch no chance that any human could possibly read every scientific paper that's written, right? That, that ship has passed a long time ago. Um, and so the question is like, what should I focus my attention on? I mean, vast areas of science, I'm not going to focus any attention on because I don't have the skill. I haven't made the investments. I didn't do the apprenticeship in order to make productive contributions to particle physics, right? That's not, that's not ever going to be my area. What I did put my time into as an apprentice, even there, there's too much to read. Yeah. And so I rely on um, like, and, and I, I rely on other friends of mine who, who are reading also in the area to tell me, Jay, this is a really interesting thing. Yeah. Right. And I'll tell them when I find things that are, that are new, that, that, that are interesting, I'll, I'll tell them. So the community itself by this sort of informal post hoc peer review, yeah. lavishes an attention on some things and other, and less on other things. Uh, but it also uses these markers that are not actually good markers for quality necessarily right what kind what journal was it published in well there's a lot of bad papers in good journals the main purpose of which is to gain social status for the person that publishes there that's the main purpose it served um there's a the, the did it pass peer review again not a good marker necessarily now now a lot of the during especially during the covid pandemic a lot of the very most important papers were not peer reviewed they were just published in in uh you know these preprint servers like med archive and uh, there was tremendous amount of combing through it, trying to find the gems inside the, you know, inside of the midst of a lot of dross uh, as to, to, to tell people about. Mm -hmm. And I think uh, there's no, there's never going to be perfection in this, right? This is a, this is a, this is a, a fundamental human thing. We are not AIs and even AIs couldn't be help wouldn't help us because who's going to trust an AI telling you this is the most important paper when how's, how does it know it was trained on the same things I was trained on, mm -hmm. um, except at scale. Uh, so, so what, 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 what you have no, you have no choice. You have to have some, some mechanism to, uh, uh, focus the attention of the community on something. The problem with this, the centralized model is that it's too easy to get taken over by a small group of people with self-interest. And that's what happened. I think during the pandemic, uh, you, you brought up other examples, whereas the decentralized model has some hope of not having that corruption, even if it might fail at, at 
uh, uh, putting attention on the right things. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay, uh, I have now kept you for an hour, Matt, and I am so grateful that you you took the time to talk with me. It was such a fun conversation. I, I hope you are willing to come back because these are not the kind of issues that can be resolved in an hour. Yeah, there's lots to talk about, and uh, I just want to thank you, Jay, for the work that you did through this whole crazy episode of the of the pandemic. It was really uh, kind of inspiring to uh, to watch you stand uh, out in the out in the cold and. Cry in the wilderness. <laughs> uh, I mean, I did. There are some compensations, like getting to meet folks like you, Matt. So I appreciate uh, appreciate that. All right, thanks for everybody. This has been uh, uh, Jay Bhattacharya on the Illusion of Consensus podcast in conversation with Matt Crawford. Until next time. Hi everyone. A quick word from our first and exciting new sponsor, Alchemy Elements. We've been shopping around trying to find the best sponsors that align with our mission and our values and what we stand for. And we've come across Alchemy Elements, which I'm very excited to bring to you guys, which is a synergistic herbal supplement. It's a mix of several adaptogenic plant compounds. For those of you who don't know, adaptogens, you might have heard on Andrew Huberman's podcast, are uh, plant medicines that help the body adapt to stress, essentially. And so there's a number of adaptogens in here, including cordyceps mushrooms, reishi mushrooms, astrologus, shiljot, polygala, lion's mane mushrooms, and other compounds as well. And you just take a tablespoon of this, you put it in your morning coffee or your smoothie or protein shake, and you're good to go. Um, I've been doing this for about a week. And as it suggests, um, some of the short-term effects of increased focus, increased concentration, more energy. I've already been feeling some of that. Uh, look forward to taking it more in the long term and reporting back as we do more of these ads. Uh, we've been very careful and selective in what to what what to sponsor on our program, and this is something that I can totally get behind. And as long as you keep hearing ads about this particular product, Alchemy Elements. You can be assured that this is something that I stand behind and can personally vouch for and recommend individuals try. Um, so for a limited time right now, um, people who are watching or listening to this podcast, they can get a 10% discount on their first order, or they can get a 30% discount for all subscription orders if you um, subscribe for a certain amount of deliveries per month. And if you um, order a subscription package, then you can get the premium gold kit as well, which includes this um, really nice gold bottle and a gold spoon to store your alchemy elements. Um, just use the code word illusion. If you're on Spotify or Apple or Substack, um, we'll drop a link below, or you can manually uh, type in alchemyelements.com and you can add um, your uh, products to the cart and you can put in the code illusion and you can get the 10% off discount for the first order or 30% off for the subscription order and you can get your gold kit. Uh, thank you so much to Alchemy Elements. Um, please check them out and uh, I hope you enjoy their product.